Let's take our Bibles out. And I would say the passage you should turn to, one that we'll get to soonest in 2 Corinthians 4. We will be going through many passages today since we have begun our study on the conscience. Our study on the conscience. And today we come to the second message. I almost think that the second message is 1.2. This is an upgrade on the first message, as my desire today is to further ground us in what we're talking about, in what we're studying together, because we're going to be coming to some more, um, some deeper passages that are just going to take us knowing exactly what we're talking about before we get there. All right? So let's pray. My dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, and ask for God's help as we consider the conscience today. Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would make it our delight. It would be honey to our souls, that we would eat it, that we would take it in, that we would not be rebellious in any way, but that we would have its intended purpose upon our hearts, which is that wonderful joy of walking in its light. We do pray for that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. A mother was helping her son with his spelling assignment. How many of you have spelling in school? Yeah, you're still there, you have spelling in school. Well, they came to the words conscious and conscience. Those are some hard words. Well, she asked him if he knew the difference between the two, and he responded, well, sure, Mom. Conscious is when you're aware of something, and conscience is when you wish you weren't. Now, it's good to see some of the young people understand what that meant. Last week, we began our study on the conscience, and we tried to determine what it is. And today, we're going to recover what we learned last week. We're going to add to it, and we're going to expand upon it. So I don't know if this has really happened before on a Sunday morning for me, but the outline on the screen will be extremely similar. The outline in the manuscript is extremely similar to last week. Yet there are some things that have changed, and there are many things that have been added. So, that happened in part because when I talked to you since last week, I realized that it's going to be useful for us to define the conscience more. Particularly, I need to define the conscience by explaining what the conscience is not. So, let's recover what we learned last week, but with a great deal more of understanding together. We learned last week that the conscience is your inner impulse to do what you should do. The conscience is your inner impulse to do what you should do. And first thing we saw last week then was the inner impulse is universal in people. That inner impulse is universal in people because everybody has a conscience. I had a sweet little girl ask me after the service last week, is the conscience real? Because I've never seen a little angel appear on my shoulder. To answer that question, 
you have a conscience even if you don't see a shoulder angel. Having a shoulder angel is simply a way that some people display the conscience in a cartoon or in a show. What they're trying to do is is show you what you actually can't see with your eyes, but you know from experience. There is a conflict that goes on within you. and You're tempted to do what's wrong or you're urged to do what's right. And I was encouraged that I had someone come up to me after the service and tell me that they had seen in a cartoon a shoulder angel. I was quite pleased to know that what I said hit home. Now, this is a very simple point that everyone has a conscience, and that's not a secret. And this is where we're going to find ourselves in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. Paul here is speaking with Timothy. He says this, We would commend ourselves. Well, to what? It says to everyone's conscience, everyone's conscience, in the sight of God by the open statement of the truth. So Paul knew everyone had a conscience. Therefore, he conducted his ministry honestly. And one of the plainest of conclusions from our biblical study of this conscience, the term for conscience, is that people have them. In the Scriptures, we learn about my conscience, your conscience, his conscience, our conscience, and their conscience. That is to say, conscience is a unique feature of being human. If you're not a human, you don't have a conscience. Animals don't have a conscience, for example. We need to think about this because our society runs smoothly because of this inner impulse in people universally. I want you to think about the golden rule. Remember what the golden rule is? Matthew 7, 12 says, what others would do to you, do also to them. The point is, do what you should do towards others as you'd hope they would do towards you. Now, that's simple logic there, but that logic is built on the foundation of the law the, word of the, the work of the law that's written on the heart and that conscience calling us to do those things. If we all didn't share that sense of right and wrong and that impulse to do what was right, we couldn't say, do to others as you would have them do to you. Because believe it or not, there are things that everyone agrees upon. When it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, it says, against such there is the law. There's not disagreement on these things. There are things that one understands, that's what you ought to do. And that's society run, to a certain degree, smoothly. That's why you have heard someone say, when something's been done that's not fair or something that wasn't kind, you have certainly heard it said, or perhaps, kids, you've said it yourself, how would you feel if... There you go again. You're making an argument based on what you know should be done because there is this universal sense of right and wrong and there's a universal impulse to do what is right, that we ought to do what is right. So there's the argument and that's how it plays out because it is not only in one person or two people or just in Christian people, it is in all people. So we see that the conscience is a wonderful 
urges people to do what they should do as they live together. And the thing is that people live contrary to their conscience. The sad reality is that more and more people do what is contrary to what they know to be true. That's why John MacArthur entitled his book on the conscience, The Vanishing Conscience. Those of you who are older saints know that things weren't, aren't today what they were back then. People think completely different. Back then, you had the Lord's Day, and everyone knew it. Today, you say the Lord's Day, and almost no one knows what it is, because there's no consciousness about the day devoted to the Lord. So things have changed. But while people may be violating their consciences, it is true that all people have them. That's the first thing we learned about the conscience last week. Now, secondly, this inner impulse is something that is informed because the conscience, it functions based on knowledge. It functions based on knowledge. And some of the knowledge is internal, like the work of the law written on the heart, Romans chapter 2, verse 15. Some of the knowledge is external, like the revealed Word of God that the Jews had, again, according to Romans 2. And the key point for us to consider is that the functioning of our conscience is directly related to our sense of right and wrong, based on what we know. We have to have that point firmly fixed in our minds. There's a direct relationship between our knowledge and this impulse to do what we know. We can learn from the Scriptures. We can learn from a pastor, from parents, from school teachers, from philosophy, from politics, from traditions, from human experience. The list is really endless. Think about it. Young people, who taught Eve that it was okay to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Who taught her that knowledge? Satan. See, we can get knowledge from anywhere. By way of application, then, we have to recognize the importance of properly informing our conscience. We might think that, well, God has given me this work of the law in my heart where I have a sense of right and wrong, and therefore everything I learn is going to go through the filter of that, and it's going to be screened by that, and I'm always going to come out right. No. No. Because Eve can be deceived. can be lied to. Furthermore, if we continually take in what is opposed to God and or... If we repeatedly act against our conscience, our sense of right and wrong can flip so that evil becomes right or evil becomes good and good can become evil. That's why I say we have to guard diligently what it is we believe because the conscience functions on the basis of what we believe is right and wrong. Secondly, conscience can change based on what you know. Or learn. We saw the example of this at the end of the message last week, but we need to make the point further. Your conscience can change for good or for bad. When we considered Peter last week, we saw that his thoughts towards the gospel going to the Gentiles, the people who were not the people of God, according to the Old Testament understanding of many of God's people, Although many of the prophets talked about the gospel going beyond the people of God, like Jonah was supposed to go to Nineveh. 
But Peter realized as he had this vision from heaven where the, the sheet comes down and on the sheet are unclean animals and he's told to kill and eat, he comes to realize what I thought before is not what I need to believe now. My thoughts need to change. Now, Peter felt the right direction, but Eve, her thoughts changed about God's prohibition about the tree. She was told to eat. She was told that it wouldn't bring about her death. So on the one hand, you can be enlightened in the right way, or on the other hand, you can be deceived. But all that to say, your conscience can change. It's not something that's fixed, and you never have to worry about it. It changes. Third, you need to realize that while there is a universal sense of right and wrong, People's consciences differ from one another because of what the conscience knows. The conscience is, it functions based on knowledge. Then based on what it knows, people's conscience may act differently. Probably a number of you know that the Bacos have a garden at their house. And you know that at least with a couple of gardens, they have an electric fence around them. Now, one of my kids might display his knowledge about the dangers of, a, of an electric fence and share that with his siblings and plead for them to not go near them because he's concerned because of what he knows about an electric fence and how dangerous it would be. I, on the other hand, know that at the Baco's house, there's no electricity running through those electric fences right now. So I'm not worried. My conscience is not going off, worried. Based on what one person says, he says, don't go near. Based on what another person says, have at it. No problem. You know, the same kind of thing was happening in the church of Corinth about food that was offered to idols in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. Some of them thought that it was wrong to eat. Others of them didn't think it was wrong. We're going to study that in detail later on. But I want to understand, while... It is true that everyone has a conscience. They're not all programmed the same way. Folks have different knowledge, and therefore their conscience is going to work differently. Now, while they're programmed differently, they do feel the same. We learned about how the conscience functioned last week, again from Romans chapter 2, verse 15. The conscience either accuses... Or excuses. It works categorically, one or the other. The conscience either approves or rejects. That is to teach us that the conscience doesn't work with gray areas. I need to illustrate this for you to make sure you understand what I'm saying. When you are tempted to lie, the conscience will give you a firm answer don't lie. Why? Because we know that it is wrong to lie. When you see on the application name, you need to put your name. We know that. Most people know that and most people live by it. But if someone asks the question, well, should I become a plumber or a painter? You know, that kind of question is not a, is not a matter of black and white. That's a gray issue. Because you can glorify God by painting or by plumbing. 
So that is not an issue for the conscience to decide because the conscience works by passing judgment for us or against us. Consider what it says in 1 John 3, 20 and 21. Whenever our heart, which here it's used as a synonym for conscience, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So again, the way the conscience works is that it is for us or against us. And I want to give you an example of this from Scripture. Remember the Apostle Paul didn't have an easy ministry. We often think of the Apostle Paul as a wonderful Christian man. He wrote a great portion of the New Testament, but he really had a hard time. He particularly had a hard time with the church in Corinth because those people opposed his ministry. They questioned his credentials. So in 2 Corinthians, that letter, Paul defends his ministry, and he does so by calling the witness of his own conscience. So turn, if you're in 2 Corinthians, turn back to 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12, this is where Paul says, or speaks of the testimony of his conscience. <clears throat> he says, for this reason, for our reason for confidence is this. That's perhaps a better way to understand our boast is this. The reason for our confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. You see, the te- our conscience has a testimony. It's going to give a word. It's going to give a witness. The reason Paul was bold in ministry, even when he was opposed, because he had the testimony of his conscience. What was the testimony? Look at verse 12. We behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. So Paul is saying, there's nothing shady about my ministry. We conducted it simply and sincerely. And when his conscience processed him saying that, the conscience acted as a witness that Paul was being honest about it. There are several of these kind of positive examples that we can consider in the life of Paul. I turn you back to the verse that uh, was in the order of service today, Romans chapter 9, verse 1. This is where Paul says, I am speaking the truth of Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness. My conscience bears witness that I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness that I'm telling the truth. There are other passages that Paul says essentially the same thing, but doesn't use the term for conscience. So in Galatians 1.20, he says, In what I'm writing to you, before God, I do not lie. He's saying, I have a clear conscience about this. These are examples of the conscience functioning as a witness for him, that as one who's not against him, but for him. Now, we've all experienced something like this. I need to bring this down to our level where we get it, right? We've all experienced our conscience commending us. For example, and it can be something very, very simple, but you think about something that might happen in your house. Perhaps in our house, you walk into the house, you close the door behind you. Good thing. But then your dad finds the door left open, and he questions you about it. And you turn to him and say, in all good conscience, I know I closed the door. And when you say that, 
your conscience affirms you're telling the truth. Like, you know you closed it, you're telling dad you did, and you feel within your own heart, I'm telling the truth. You've all had that experience in one way or another. Of knowing that what you're saying is the truth. But perhaps you've had that opposite experience too. When you've left the door open, but you tell mom and dad, oh, I closed it. And as soon as you utter the words, your conscience condemns you because you know you're not telling the truth. It's instances like that, that the conscience, instead of defending you, the conscience is accusing you. You see, that's how the conscience works. It either excuses or accuses. Now, the question might be then, is it a good thing for your conscience to accuse you when you would do what's wrong? I mean, that feeling that I get when I lie to my mom and dad, is that a good feeling to have? Because I, I don't enjoy it much at all. Should I value that or should I try to not think about that at all? It is a good thing when the conscience accuses you when you do wrong. It's a good thing. The conscience is like an alarm system that signals to you that something is wrong. You need to fix it. Some of you saw that I went camping this last weekend. And part of that camping experience was cooking on the fire. And I'm usually careful about many things, but for some reason, I grabbed the marshmallow roasting stick the wrong way because I just didn't think it was going to be hot at that point. Oh, boy. You know, the nerves in your fingers, they're God's gift to you because they tell you quickly, that's hot, let go. Of course, you don't let go. It's going to get really bad for you really fast. Those nerves are good. And that signal, that alarm is good because it's meant to be the thing that helps you let go. Or as we said last week, when the GPS voice says to you, you're going the wrong way down the road, turn around. That is a good thing that it's saying that because it's meant to help you. So brothers and sisters in the Lord, I want you to consider How wonderful a God we have that he made us with a conscience. Because we could have been made in such a way that we did wrong and we didn't care a bit. Even when it would bring about terrible consequences in our life. God is such a good God to give us a conscience. The conscience can function as a witness about what we have done. Next, conscience can also function as a guide about what we should do. The conscience can not only look back and say, this is what you've done, I commend you, or I accuse you. It can also look forward and help you understand what you ought to do. This is where we get to Romans chapter 13, where Paul brings up the topic of government authority. Governments have been instituted by God for our good, the Bible teaches. Therefore, our conscience leads us to obey the government officials not only to avoid punishment by them, but because we believe in our conscience, it's the right thing to do. So it's not simply, I want to drive the speed limit because I don't want to get the ticket, but I understand that obeying the law is good for me. So I should do it for conscience' sake. So Paul says in Romans 13, 5, Therefore, one who... 
Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. You and me submitting to the government officials is the right thing to do, so we should do it. And then our minds quickly run to, well, what happens when the government orders us to go against a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith? You know, that's something that Peter faced. That's something that Christians all around the world face on a regular basis. Peter and the apostles were sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, of forgiveness of sin through him and him alone. But then the authorities didn't want Peter and the apostles talking about Jesus. They said to them in Acts chapter 4, verse 18, they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They said, don't talk about Jesus. And you can see what a restriction that would put on your daily witness for Jesus Christ, which is one of the primary things we're supposed to be as believers. Well, how did Peter and the rest respond? Acts 5.29, Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. So here is a very important example of prioritizing the knowledge that we receive, the knowledge that we have. The instruction from God has to supersede instruction from the government. All other instruction, in fact. Because the conscience functions based on knowledge. And as the conscience does that, it guides us. And I make those points to say that the conscience within us is not a lazy person. The conscience is not like a stack of books that contain a lot of knowledge. It just sits there. The conscience is an active impulse for us to do something, for us to think something, for us to say something. I read through a lot of books and commentaries and articles on the conscience, and I bring this up because a number of them define the conscience simply as a sense or awareness of right and wrong. was the definition that I thought I was going to use, but I chose not to use, because I think the conscience goes beyond a simple sense of right and wrong. The conscience goes as far as to implore us to do something, to urge us to do something. I was pleased when I found MacArthur saying this about the conscience. The conscience entreats us to do what we believe is right and restrains us from doing what we believe is wrong which I think goes right along with the definition I've given you. The conscience is actively assessing our situation. And when I thought about this, I thought about a unique experience that I have as a hockey referee. Some of you may know all about hockey, but I'm going to give you a quick tutorial. In general, when you're trying to put the puck in the net, your team has to have the puck enter the attacking zone before the team. The team can't get into the attacking zone before the puck. And all that's determined at the blue line. So the referee's job, when the play goes into the attacking zone, he either says, good, which means you're onside, keep going, or offsides and blows the whistle because you did something wrong. Okay, when the official does that, he either commends 
or accuses, offside. That's the way your conscience works. It doesn't just sit there like a rule book and say, well, there's a rule about that, but no one's saying anything. The conscience actually speaks up, does something. It moves. It's active. So I think it's very, very important for us to realize conscience is your inner impulse to do what you should do. It's universal. It's informed. And it's category. That's categorical. That's what it is. Now we have to consider as we close what it is not. Because we need to not confuse the conscience with something else. So here's the added point in particular. The conscience is not the following. The conscience is not the Holy Spirit. The conscience is not the Holy Spirit. Of all the things that people would confuse the conscience with, that's the primary one. You say, well, why would people think that the conscience and the Holy Spirit are the same? Well, I want you to listen for a moment to verses about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does. Just listen. And listen for things that the Spirit does that perhaps the conscience does. Listen. John 16, 8. When He, the Spirit, comes, He will convict the world about sin. John 16, 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. John 15, 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness Romans 8.16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. Romans 8.9, 8, 8, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now compare that to what you know to be true about the conscience. And you say there's a lot of parallels between the conscience and, and the Spirit. So it can be difficult for believers to distinguish the leading of the Holy Spirit from the leading or the inner impulse of the conscience. Yet we know that they're not the same. I mentioned it in truth, but I didn't explain it in detail last week. We know that they're not the same because everyone has a conscience, but only believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So we know they're not the same. Absolutely. But secondly, the conscience may urge us to do something that's contrary to the truth. And that's something the Holy Spirit would never do because it is the spirit of truth. The conscience can be misinformed and it can guide someone into sin. For example, an activist may think he is doing what is right. His conscience is leading him to do the wrong thing, though, because of what he believes to be true and right. But the Spirit of God would never lead a person to sin. So the Spirit says, truth is always going to be right, but the conscience understanding of truth may not be right. So that's where we can see them distinguished. We know and can distinguish the leading of the Spirit from the leading of the conscience first when the conscience would lead astray. Our hope is that the Holy Spirit would lead us through the conscience to do what we should do that the Spirit works through the conscience upon the believer. The second way we can distinguish the Spirit from the conscience is when the Spirit has enlightened the believer with knowledge that is not naturally possessed. And this is where we can go back to Romans chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. You remember that Paul is someone who had studied the Scriptures and he knew God's promises, especially towards the nation of Israel. So when he had the conviction within him, 
from the conscience, it's not simply based on what he naturally knows as a person to be right and wrong. It actually springs from his knowledge of the Scriptures. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing joy or an unceasing anguish in my heart. Why is Paul so full of sorrow for God's people? Well, Paul knows the promises of God for Israel's salvation, but he also realizes that Israel is rejecting Jesus as the, as the Messiah at that point. So he's grieved in his heart. And that's something where he realizes the truth of God's word, something far beyond simply what is right and wrong. He's become convinced of the revealed truth of God. That's something beyond what his conscience teach him and motivate him to do. So conscience and the Holy Spirit are not the same. They're different. Secondly, the conscience is not the work of the law in the heart. Brings us back to Romans 2.15. The work of the law is distinguished from the conscience. The conscience also bears witness, the verse says. That separates this sense of right and wrong from the urge to do what is right. They're different. And we have to be different. Thirdly, the term heart, because we're going to just look at the studying the conscience in the Old Testament, and we're often going to use the word heart. But we need to know that the term heart in the Old Testament in particular is not always a synonym for the conscience. The heart, according to Scripture, is the entirety of a person. But the conscience is only part of that heart, only part of what is within so sometimes the passage is talking about the conscience, but not all. When its heart smote him, that's the conscience. That's what the conscience does. John talks about the heart either condemning or not condemning. He's talking about the conscience, 1 John 3, 20 and 21. So sometimes the heart, but not all the time. We need to make sure to keep them straight. Lastly, to say that the conscience isn't something outside of us, even though it seems like it. We can see this again in Romans chapter 9, verse 1. But it seems to us that the conscience works as if it's independent. Often in the news and in Congress, you hear for all these calls for an independent analysis of the situation. They don't want a partisan thing. They want an independent assessment. Well, in many ways, that's how the conscience feels. It's within us, but it doesn't feel within us. It feels like it's outside making judgments about us. You think if it was in your heart, it would be on your side, but sometimes it functions against you. So is it in me? It's just meant to say it's making an assessment. Paul says in Romans 9.1, I lie not. It's like me. I lie not. I lie not. Then it's almost like he says, my conscience is testifying with me as if it's something different than him. But it's actually in him. It's just trying to show us again and again that conscience is independent in the way that it works. You're able to desire perhaps what's wrong, but your conscience is able to cast a judgment on that of what's right. And we need to be able to understand that tension because it is a tension that really impacts people. When it says that David's heart smote him, it really had a tremendous impact on his life. Think of someone else who had a, 
a bad conscience. You remember what Judas did when he realized that they were going to crucify Jesus Christ? Remember what great action he took when his conscience crushed his spirit? Not that that was a good thing at all, but it illustrates that people really care about what the conscience is saying to them. It feels like an independent witness, but it's an independent witness that you really listen to. You can't get away from. You tell a lie and your conscience just nags you. Or you tell the truth and your conscience commends you. So my brothers and sisters, as we consider what the conscience is, I hope we have a a good grasp of what it is and that we really have the right idea about it and approach towards it. That God has been so good and so kind to give each person a conscience. Father, we ask that you will help us as we consider your word on this matter. May we come to understand it more. May we come to exercise it better. And I pray that you would give your people such joy that you intend for them because they have a tender heart, a good conscience. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.